0: You're tuned to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, K201HR 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. Altogether, this is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. This is the Ecology Hour Science Edition. So, with me via Zoom is Dr. Robert Spees, and we're going to interview uh, an oceanographer tonight, and hopefully understand a lot more about the oceans off the Northern California coast, why they work the way they do, and in particular, why there is so much fog here in the summer. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest?
1: Yeah, I'm pleased to uh, welcome an old colleague from Alaska, uh, Dr. Thomas Weingartner, who's Professor Emeritus of Oceanography at the University of Alaska Fairbanks um, School of uh, Marine Science. Tom's talking to us tonight from uh, Boise, Idaho, his new home. Uh, welcome to our program, Tom. We're really pleased to have you here, and it's great to connect with you again.
2: Well, thank you, Bob, and it's great to be here.
1: Uh, we usually start our program by asking our guests uh, a little bit about the, uh, the, you know, the kind of history, uh, how they got interested in what they're doing, and a little bit about their background and Uh, You've had, a, I know, a long and glorious career in Alaska, studying uh, ocean currents and all the major uh, seas and oceans off Alaska, but perhaps you could tell us how you got got to where you are.
2: Well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll just uh, try to make it quick. Uh, When I graduated from college in 74, uh, I had one thing on my desire list, and that was to go to Alaska, and so I did. And um, uh, I went there with the idea of pursuing a career in, in, in science, but it wasn't uh, clear what kind of science I was going to pursue. And I wound up meeting a, a bunch of young students uh, that were pursuing graduate degrees in oceanography. And I had never thought about oceanography. And I talked to them and talked to them about what they were doing. And it sounded interesting. Uh, and I went and I applied, got accepted to the graduate program and I did my master's degree there. And, uh, I guess the very first, one of the very first things I did was go out to sea and I just fell in love with it. It was just absolutely amazing trip. And, uh, I completed my master's degree. I went into the private consulting world for a couple of years and decided that I really wanted to continue. And, uh, received my PhD in physical oceanography from uh, North Carolina State University. And during the course of that, I worked on the equatorial Atlantic Ocean. But um, I still had Alaska in my system and I was fortunate enough to be able to go back and wound up on the faculty and um, stayed there for the rest of my career and had the great fortune of working on every ocean, touching that magnificent state.
1: That's great. and. Wh- uh... Briefly, what are what are the oceans that are, that are surrounding Alaska, just so we get a little bit of, of a big picture?
2: So along the north coast, which most of your uh, listeners have probably uh, recognized as the Prudhoe Bay, the oil patch of Alaska is the Beaufort Sea, which is the southern portion of the um, Arctic Ocean. Uh, Western Alaska, between um, the northeast coast of Alaska and the uh, uh, excuse me, northwest coast of Alaska and the northeast coast of Russia is the Chukchi Sea, and that also borders on the Arctic Ocean. And to the south of that, connecting the um, Pacific Ocean to the Arctic Ocean is uh, the Bering Strait, which then leads into the Bering Sea, and that's uh, separated from the North Pacific Ocean by the Aleutian Island Arc. And then to the east of the Allusions, and along the south coast of Alaska is
1: uh, the Gulf of Alaska. I, I think it might be useful to start at the biggest level to talk about uh, what we what we can say generally about oceanography in the North Pacific. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the, some of the major current systems uh, in the North Pacific.
2: Well, uh, well, probably begin then in the um, far western, Pacific, which is the Kirishito current, and um, that's the uh, Pacific Ocean's analog to the Gulf Stream. And that current is relatively narrow, um, well, maybe 70, 80 miles wide, but very swift, moving along at um, two to five knots, which doesn't sound like much, but that's that's very swift for an ocean current. And that, that current draws warm water. the tropical regions of the Pacific Ocean, and uh, brings them up along Japan, um, uh, and then swings eastward across about 35 to 40 degrees north, and brings that warm water gradually eastward over towards North America, and on approaching, say, Washington, British Columbia, that current bifurcates and the northern limb heads up around coastal uh, British Columbia and Alaska, eventually sweeps back to the southwest by Kodiak Island in the Alaska Peninsula, while a southern branch continues um, southward along the west coast of North America and eventually returns eastward Uh, down around 15 to 20 degrees north, uh, and uh, reconnects eventually with the Kirishio, uh, and also merges with some waters uh, coming northward from the equatorial regions of the Pacific Ocean. So these these broad currents that I just described uh, form two massive ocean gyres. The first one we call the subtropical gyre, which is uh, bounded um, on its northern part by the eastward drift emanating from the Kirishio, the southward flow along the west coast of North America, and the north equatorial current proceeding then westward uh, in between 15 and 20 degrees north. And to the north of that, we have what's called the subarctic gyre, which is uh, formed from part of that bifurcation of that flow moving eastward from the Curitio that flows up around Alaska and then heads southwestward uh, along Kodiak Island and eventually returns to the North Pacific along the southern flank of the um, Aleutian Islands.
1: So we have a kind of, kind of a clockwise... Um... Uh, gyre that, that's off California.
2: A uh, large clockwise gyre yeah, that spans yeah. the entire ocean basin
1: right. Uh, west. Yeah. Right. And then we've got a, a counterclockwise
2: gyre north of that, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and both of those current systems are very important in, um, well, we, if we think right back to the Shield current, it's really Im- hugely important in transporting heat by the ocean, from the tropics and equatorial regions up to uh, northerly latitudes, northern latitudes.
1: Yeah, we might want to come back to that point because uh, I'm I'm very interested in hearing uh, and and introducing some of the concepts of uh, marine heat waves, uh, which are uh, a real phenomenon off this coast. Maybe we can get to that a little bit later in the program.
2: Hey uh, Bob, just one thing I want to uh, caution the listeners is these gyres that I'm talking about—they are um, largely confined to the deep ocean basins. So they're 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 not necessarily uh, riding up along the continental shelves of either Oregon or California or Alaska. They have their own current systems. Those shelf current systems are um, are can communicate. With the ocean basin, but their their dynamics can be slightly different. We can talk about those. Um, uh, just just also for your readers' uh, appreciation, the the deep ocean basins are are, are anywhere from uh, 3,000 to six thousand meters deep. So um, you know, uh, several thousand to many tens of thousands of feet deep and um the the continental shelves are much shallower so they're they're maybe at most about 250 meters deep or so
1: so the current systems along the along the continental shelves are not necessarily uh in sync with uh with the uh the larger
0: gyre uh
2: not necessarily. their Their dynamics are are are, are, are governed by uh, by the winds as well, but uh, different types of wind forcing patterns. Yes.
1: Right. Right. So, what 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 forces these gyres to circulate? Uh,
2: well, um, if you think about it, uh, uh, the 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 basic pressure systems that are sitting in the atmosphere uh, and responsible for the mean winds uh, over these ocean basins are what ultimately drives uh, those circulation patterns I just described. So again sitting uh, to the west of California and Oregon coasts um, is, the, uh, is a very large high pressure system. And that's straddling, say, between about 35 north and about 15, 10 degrees uh, north. So that's encompassing um, the mid-latitude portion of the…
1: Uh, so is that uh, the north, north Pacific high then?
2: That would be the North Pacific high, yes. Right, right. Okay, and then um, sitting over the Gulf of Alaska and the Bering Sea are, um, is the uh, Aleutian low pressure system. And the Aleutian low pressure system is, uh, um, the winds around the Aleutian low pressure system also flow counterclockwise, where the winds around the North Pacific high flow clockwise. So the, the ocean circulation directional sense mimics or follows basically that of the atmosphere. Now. And there's variations in these pressure systems. So the Aleutian low, which is really a composite or a result of an average of storms propagating through the region. And those storms have a lifetime of say a week or so, but you sum them all up and take the average and you get this mean wind pattern over the Gulf of Alaska that's uh, counterclockwise that drives the ocean circulation. Similarly, the uh, North Pacific High, it it um, it weakens and strengthens throughout time, and um, but ultimately that that pressure system supports the wind field, which drives that clockwise circulation pattern around the North Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm.
1: And then the these uh, these winds also have a big influence on uh, near coast circulation on a shelf right
2: exactly and yeah. um, and uh, the the California and Oregon coasts are um, um, are referred to as the eastern boundary of the sub subtropical uh, North Pacific Ocean and um, they share uh, a commonality with uh, the eastern boundaries of um, the African uh, continent uh, to a certain extent, the European continent and uh, to the South American continent in both the Northern and the Southern Hemispheres. So um, what's, what's uh, interesting about these Eastern boundary currents or Eastern boundary regions is that um, they're typically um, very highly productive from in a biological sense. Uh, if you were to look at where at least traditionally um, and to a certain extent still today the most um, the richest uh, fisheries they're generally in the eastern boundaries uh, along these continental shelves that i just mentioned and that has to do with a phenomenon known as uh, coastal upwelling and i'd be happy to describe that if if, if that's of interest
1: yeah it's, it's it's really interesting these eastern boundary currents uh just a little little side note i was watching a movie called my teacher the octopus and it was about a fellow that uh uh essentially made friends with an octopus but it w- the, the thing about it was it was it was located in on the uh, eastern coast of uh, uh south africa
2: exactly.
1: and and uh you could and it was a lot of underwater shots and it looked very much like california when you dive in california it, it's a it's a cold water system with big uh, kelp and sea urchins and uh, if you didn't look if you just kind of squ- squinted a little bit it looks like California and uh, uh,
2: I just saw that movie the other night and I, I highly recommend it to anyone that I mean the cinematography was beautiful and it was just just a lovely um, story as well
0: yeah 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 if I could just break in for a moment and reintroduce you uh, if you've just joined us. Uh, Listeners, this you're tuned to the Ecology Hour on KZYX Science Edition, and our guest tonight is Professor Thomas Weingartner, an emeritus professor of oceanography at the College of Fisheries and Ocean Sciences, University of Alaska, Fairbanks, and uh, we're kind of starting from the high-level stratospheric look at the Pacific Ocean and working through all the currents and how energy and water is transported and what that has to do with our local weather. So we're getting into some seriously interesting stuff here. Go ahead, Dr. Weingartner.
2: Yeah, so I was going to describe why uh, we find these um, upwelling regions along the Eastern boundaries of the major continents um, uh, so productive biologically. And um, uh, uh, in in California and, and Oregon, uh, in the summertime, in particular this this high pressure system that we just talked about strengthens, and um, in in doing so, um, it propels uh, winds from the north to the south along the coast, and those winds, as i 'm sure the folks listening know, can often be uh, quite strong and um, because we have to uh, examine our oceanographic processes on a rotating earth, uh, this uh, causes the Coriolis effect to come into play as the winds blow across the water. And as they're flowing from north to south, uh, the Coriolis effect results in the surface waters. And by the surface layer, I mean anything from uh, 50 feet down to 150 feet causes that surface water to be deflected offshore. So it is drifting offshore at the surface. And um, if you think about it, um, it can't do that forever. It has to be replaced. And the replacement comes from water uh, carried up from the bottom of the shelf into the surface layers. Okay. So in one sense, we have a drift at the surface heading offshore, but that is compensated for a drift coming along the bottom inshore, and then that inshore drift then slowly coming up to the surface to replace the water that's been pushed offshore. At the same time that that's happening, there's a redistribution of the density of the ocean water columns and by the density that's set up by the temperature and the salinity of the ocean so high temperature low salinity water is less dense than cold higher salinity water and what we have on the uh, uh, west coast of the united states in the summertime is you have actually warm relatively low salinity water at the surface and at depth you have uh, colder, higher salinity water. And it turns out that that cold, high salinity water at depth is nutrient rich. Whereas the water at the surface, uh, it tends to be nutrient poor just because of the phytoplankton that are in that surface water are using those nutrients, just like your tomato plants use up the fertilizer that you might put in your garden boxes or so. so. this cross-shore circulation shell, cell that I just described with water going offshore at the surface, onshore at depth, continuously brings in nutrients that are then carried up to the surface and support uh, tremendous uh, biological produ- productivity. That biological productivity uh, at the level of the phytoplankton then supports an enormously productive trophic system proceeding on to the zooplankton and to fish and the many marine mammals that are also supported in this region. Um, There's one other important aspect of the ocean circulation um, that uh, I want to mention. And that is that um, there, so there is this cross shelf circulation cell, and there's a a tongue twister for you. but there's also a longshore current that is uh, very swift. And that longshore current is also a consequence of the winds via redistributing the density distribution of the ocean. And that's a little bit more complicated. I don't think we need to go into any detail on that, except to say that the resultant longshore flow is in the same direction as the wind and many times faster than the cross-shelf circulation shell that I just described. So in a sense, the winds that are blowing from north to south, pretty simple, actually create a very complex three-dimensional circulation cell uh, over the continental shelf. And of course, there's complications uh, associated with that due to variations in coastline capes and bays, uh, bottom topography, rivers coming in and that sort of thing. But overall, that's in a, in a nutshell what the cell circulation cell looks like. Uh, one of the other consequences of this upwelling, which I just described, is that by bringing cold water to the surface, you now have cool water sitting at the surface in contact with a warm, moist, atmosphere and there's only one thing that that moisture can do in the atmosphere and that's to condense into fog and that's why in the summertime uh, it's often uh, foggy where you guys live and often quite cold to to swim in that's why a good nut deal your beach goers are in wetsuits
1: Well, we certainly uh, see a lot of fog, and we see a lot of variability in fog. Uh, You know, uh, some some years are fogger than others, and we've got stretches of foggy years, and and uh, a few years where there's at least here here locally there's hasn't been too much fog. And Hmm. and I think overall there's um, what I've heard from locally, and I I don't really haven't looked at any data is that the the uh, there's a less fog now than there used to be i think i heard from some people
2: there's less fog
0: yeah yeah it's been really variable in recent years though the uh, when we had the el blabino year there was almost no fog at all that year because the ocean was so warm
2: uh yeah yeah and
0: early and then we didn't have fog late
2: yeah yeah the el ninos will will um, um especially the strong ones um uh that's, that's a whole nother uh, fascinating story, but essentially when an El Niño takes place, uh, warm water sloshes across the equatorial Pacific uh, from the Western Pacific over towards South America. And um, uh, that sloshing uh, uh, is associated with what physical oceanographers call a Kelvin wave which is a long period, very large, many thousands of kilometers long wave that propagates from the Western Pacific to the Eastern Pacific. That wave slams into the South American continent and portions of that wave energy continue northward uh, uh, along the coast of um, north of the equator ultimately along the coast of uh, North America. And another portion of that energy continues southward along the South American coast in the same way. And what that wave does is actually depress, its, 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 its signal is, is, is evident by a depression of the thermocline along the, uh, the, the, the shelf of the West Coast of the United States. So a thermocline is nothing more than, um, and, and I'm sure most of your listeners have probably encountered one if they ever dove into a lake in the summertime and they get a nice warm water at the surface, as it, but as they go deeper and deeper, it gets colder and they pass through a region where the temperature changes relatively quickly. We call those regions where the temperature changes quite quickly a thermocline. and um, And so there is a, Thermocline uh, along the, uh, the shelf, across the shelf of Oregon and California year round. It varies in intensity depending upon the season. But um, when that Thermocline um, is depressed, there's much more warmer water sitting at the surface um, uh, than um, when it's elevated. Right. And in, 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 in very strong coastal upwelling events, that thermocline is actually peeled all the way up to the surface and drifts offshore so that the nearshore waters uh, off California and Oregon can be uh, very weakly stratified in terms of temperature, very little temperature variation from surface to bottom.
0: Yeah, we had uh, had Tristan McHugh from Reef Check on the show a few months ago, uh, and she was uh, describing an extreme upwelling uh, and extremely cold water that came in on our coastline earlier this year with temperatures in the uh, low to mid 40s Fahrenheit. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: Extremely cold water, in and, that, and that's in shallow, that's, that's uh, 20, 30 feet of water.
2: Yeah, Just that, right. that
0: deep cold water all the way up onto the intertidal range.
2: Yeah, I should also mention that, um, um, There's a potentially double-edged sword that um, oceanographers are looking at now with respect to this this upwelling. While I mentioned the the very positive aspects of bringing nutrients up to the continental shelf and supporting biological production, um, uh, just offshore of the shelf uh, within the subtropical gyre of the North Pacific, and um, down below depths of about 600 feet and much deeper, um, the, the ocean waters are, 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 are low in oxygen. And this, has, uh, this is a consequence of, of, of the pathways by which those deeper waters follow all around the globe, but they've gradually lost their oxygen. So sitting offshore at depth from Oregon and um, California, Uh, is relatively low oxygen water. And sometimes that low oxygen water uh, is carried up onto the shelf in um, these upwelling events. And it can be so extreme that it leads to hypoxia um, or deficiency of oxygen, uh, deficient in terms of the biological organisms that rely on oxygen to, uh, to live along the bottom. And I know in some places there's been um, uh, fish kills and, and, and Dungeness crab kills because of this low oxygen water that has swept onto the shelf and um, for whatever reason has resided there uh, long enough to, to, to damage the ecosystem. Um, in addition, that low oxygen water is is also very high in um, dissolved organic carbon, and dissolved organic carbon is nothing more than, than a reflection of the fact that these um, biological organisms like phytoplankton, zooplankton, when they have died, they sink to the bottom, sink in through the water column, and they're consumed by microbial processes, and during the microbial respiration oxygen is consumed and carbon dioxide is given off. So one of the reasons why you have this low oxygen water sitting offshore is because of the microbial decomposition of biological material that was formed at the surface. And as the the, the carbon dioxide builds up in these waters, it becomes more acidic. So the 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 double-edged sword, or the, the, the downside of this double-edged sword is that uh, in the extreme events, you bring very acidic water that can be potentially damaging to some of the marine organisms that have shells, um, and you have low oxygen water that can also be uh, constrained production or, in some cases, uh, kill the organisms.
0: Yeah, we. I'm trying to remember who it was that we had on the show. Uh, I think it was earlier this year. Was was talking about the same thing, the phenomenon, and, and uh, that that actually did happen. I think this year as well. That we, mm. uh, but it has been happening uh, sporadically, and in some cases over fairly large areas. I gather.
2: Yes, uh, that, that's my understanding as well. I, I don't know too much about these events. Um, uh, uh, some people believe that. Um, they're happening with uh, more frequency than they've happened in the past. Uh, the, the, the single caveat on that is that um, um, our capability of monitoring things like carbon dioxide, um, pH, and oxygen in a very routine way uh, has only come to bear in the last 10 or 15 years, so our our data going back in time is sketchier but um there is an important source of 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 human anecdotal information that tends to support this idea that there's been more frequent hypoxic events and that is from the fishing industry um who have um uh feel that they have seen more of these um uh dead crabs, if you will, and, um, and dead fish uh, in recent years compared to earlier times. So I suspect that um, it probably is happening in, in greater frequency. Um, being able to quantify it uh, uh, has been a difficulty until recently. Uh, and there is some suggestions and hypotheses out there that we may expect this these events to be more frequent. Um, as the
0: climate
1: changes yeah and uh when people hear about ocean acidification uh when you bring it down to the uh, kind of the regional level there can be quite a bit of variability because of these other phenomenon so in the atlantic ocean the oxygen minimum and uh the ph are at a deeper level uh than they are in the pacific coast is that correct?
2: right the the, the um... The so low oxygen water uh, offshore California and Oregon is um, <coughs> uh, much shallower um, than that sitting off the North Atlantic. So, it, it, it it's a, this is a problem for um, uh, California and Oregon. Although it's my understanding that um, hypoxia events have been observed elsewhere as well, including in the Atlantic.
1: Right, so as as, uh, as the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from our activities continues to increase, we're probably gonna see the effects sooner here in terms of lower uh, pHs that affect things like bivalve larvae and other things that have cal- calcareous uh, shells.
2: So it is the calcareous shells that are, that are yeah. Yeah. Uh, affected by it, yes, right. yeah. Up up in Alaska, for example, um, uh, uh, the ocean acidification um, has been much more dramatic than we've seen it along California and, and, and Oregon, and that's simply because the waters up around Alaska are colder, and so they have a greater capacity to hold carbon dioxide. But if you go back to my argument about upwelling and bringing cold water to the surface, once you do that, you can then uh, absorb CO2 from the atmosphere locally.
1: Well, if you've just joined us, uh, our guest tonight on Ecology Hour is uh, Dr. Thomas Weingartner, Professor Emeritus at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and we're discussing uh, oceanography and oceanographic phenomena off our coast that are important both to our weather and uh, to
0: the productivity of our local seas yeah I had a question before we got too far away about the, the uh, current system and, uh, and particularly the shelf and nearshore currents uh, you described the shelf currents and then I know here off Mendocino coast, we occasionally get uh, a kind of a back eddy. The current will actually be going northward along our coast. Uh, Do you know what's driving that?
2: Uh, There's uh, likely uh, several uh, possibilities. Uh, That basic uh, circulation cell that I described um, earlier in the program, in which you have water is moving offshore at the surface, onshore, along the bottom, and then uh, from north to south uh, in the summer and spring, um, those are not steady. Uh, those are not necessarily continuous um, and they can be perturbed. And um, uh, the, the perturbations are, uh, we in, as oceanographers, we, we uh Uh, State those as an instability um, without going into the physics about it. the, the, The analogy would be if you were to turn a hose on very slowly into a pool, you would get a nice jet that's shooting out along the pool. But as you turn up the volume coming through that hose, it begins to spread out into eddies and break up and become very turbulent. Well, this current system that I just described to you is rife with these instabilities uh, for reasons that are analogous to, but not, not, not identical to what I just described. But if you were to look at satellite images of um, the west coast of the United States in the summer, you would see just contortion after contortion of filaments of cold water or nutrient rich or, or phytoplankton rich water shooting off the coast and spinning into eddies and um, that that's a plethora of activity all along the coastline so that's one way that you might generate one of these eddies that you're talking about. the other is that oftentimes um, you know we we in, in when I used to teach to my students the, the theoretical concepts, we always started with a nice straight coastline yeah fact, we all know that coastlines are indented with bays and capes and uh, uh, submarine banks et cetera and these those can also trigger eddies and form eddies
0: yeah, there's the coastline and also the 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 seafloor isn't
2: uh necessarily yes, exactly necessarily
0: either, yeah yeah.
2: So, those are complications to the basic pattern. And, and um, you know, of course, if, if you're a fish or a fisherman, you're looking at things at a local level. Uh, if you're a theoretical oceanographer, you're looking at the large scale. And so, uh, if you're interested in what's happening at the local level, you must take into consideration uh, all those little phenomena that I just talked about.
0: Uh, I was just gonna say we have both ends of that spectrum here because you're the oceanographer and I'm a fisherman.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was
1: just gonna say that uh, in Southern California, there is a a uh, subsurface counter current called the Davidson uh, right. countercurrent. current. Uh, I don't know uh, how prominent it is up here, but it tends to surface in the winter um, uh, when the, when the, when the, the north pacific high is not as strong and it's not driving the california current uh quite as strongly is, is that consistent with your understanding tom
2: yeah um i i at one point in my uh, career I, I spent some try, time trying to understand the davidson current and that's been um a long time ago bob and um i think whatever i eventually got out of it i i have I have forgotten, but uh, the seasonality that you described is is basically correct, and that's because the 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 high pressure system weakens in the winter time off of California, so the winds um, are oftentimes reverse and they're blowing from south to north.
0: Right. You met. You started to mention earlier on about uh, energy transport, and that might be something we should get back to because uh, this whole mechanism, if, if you look at the size of the north pacific and the depth you're talking about the quantities of material being moved around and the quantities of energy being moved around are staggering
2: yeah well um it is it is quite it is quite um quite uh astonishing and uh, let me just if 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 you're if you're interested let me see if i can just give you some numbers um that I, I, I looked at today, um, and yeah, okay. So um, if you if you um, if if you consider the net transport of heat uh, across um, 24 degrees north, which is just just um, latitude, just on the southern edge of the uh, uh, Hawaiian Islands. Okay, um, there is uh, about almost one petawatt, that's 10 to the 15 watts of energy moving northward. It's, it's just shy of that, it's probably about three quarters of a petawatt. But um, for your listeners, uh, well, what's a petawatt? Well, a petawatt is uh, 10 to the 15 watts, Okay. And um, I think I did the numbers correctly here. Uh, you guys might want to check it, or you can assign that as a homework problem for your listeners. But I think that's one quadrillion, 100 light watt light bulbs, and that's moving northward with the bulk of that warm water carried northward in the Kirishio, uh current.
0: That's a lot of heat.
2: It's a lot of heat. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. And where where does it go? Where's all that heat uh, end up? going
2: well a good deal of it eventually winds up going back into the atmosphere um up in the northern north pacific okay and uh so it, it's cooling some of it is uh, brought back southward but uh, the bulk of it is is lost to the atmosphere north of about 40 degrees north
0: so that's driving all the storm activity up there that
2: Exactly. That's a very good point. That's driving the uh, forming those low pressure systems that ultimately give rise to the mean to the Aleutian low. Yeah. And those atmospheric pressure systems then serve to transport that oceanic heat via the atmosphere up to much higher latitudes.
1: So people talk about teleconnections, particularly with. I think mentioned with the Kelvin waves, you know, because the, the Kelvin waves, uh, as, as you talk about in our previous collaborations, uh, reach all the way up into the Gulf of Alaska.
2: Yes, they can. And,
1: and yeah. uh, uh, is that a teleconnection through the ocean atmosphere back into the ocean, or is it actually a wave that's carried, or most of the heat is carried uh, via water? Uh, a wave in, in the ocean itself. I, so, I don't know if I'm putting that in the right terms or not.
2: So in particular, those, those Kelvin waves that I was referring to were, were those associated with El Ninos. And um, um, so when we have an El Nino, um, both the atmosphere and the ocean respond, and the atmosphere responds relatively quickly to it, okay? And um, and and so we, we may begin to feel the atmospheric effects of, of of the El Nino on the order of weeks or so, uh, whereas the Kelvin wave propagation is 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 much slower, um, and that may extend the sense that we feel at least in the ocean the uh, El Nino response well into several months after the at least at the higher latitudes, Gulf Alaska and California, several months after the uh, El Nino on the equator starts to subside. I don't know that I can give you uh, the relative proportions of, of the warming, say, associated with atmospheric effects versus uh, uh, the oceanic transmission. Yeah. No.
0: What causes these Kelvin waves? They seem kind of bizarre.
2: Yeah, they, they are. And, um, and basically, uh, what happens during an El Nino is um, the trade winds over the Equatorial Pacific, which are blowing from east to west right along the equator, uh, and there's a very prominent thermocline that extends the entire length of the Equatorial Pacific, Okay. So these winds are are, are uh, blowing from east to west, and they tend to pile up warm water over on the western side of the Pacific. Those winds um, collapse over the uh, over the equatorial Pacific, and as soon as they collapse, that warm water starts to slosh to the east, back across the equator. Okay, so If you think about it, under typical conditions, the thermocline in the equatorial Pacific slopes downward from east to west. So it's relatively shallow off of South America and the Galapagos, and it's much deeper off of Indonesia, say, okay? So there's this huge warm pool of water sitting over the Western Pacific and much cooler water sitting over the Eastern Pacific. And all of a sudden, it's like, it's like rocking a bathtub. You tilt the uh-huh. bathtub back and it, it, it kicks off one of these Kelvin waves. Now these Kelvin waves have their maximum amplitude right on the equator and they, the amplitude of the wave uh, decays exponentially moving off the equator. So it's a really equatorial, it's what's called an equatorial trapped wave.
1: What kind of elevations are we talking about with the with the wave? Do, uh, do you know? Well,
2: it, it 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 really has uh, 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 its largest signal right at the depth of the thermocline, so uh, it'll tilt the it'll cause the thermocline to uh, deflect, or oh, maybe on the order of fifty to a hundred meters, depending upon the intensity of the of the uh, of of the event itself. So, but if you think about it, um, what you're doing is, is, is maybe pulling that, at least in the Eastern Pacific, you're pulling that thermocline down from a depth of about 50 meters down to a depth of a hundred meters. That's a huge amount of warm water that has uh, displaced that thermocline.
0: Right. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. That's that one's yeah. new to me. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we we uh, well, the 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 ocean, like many physical systems, responds to a disturbance in the form of kicking off waves, and we're very familiar. And you, as a fisherman, most certainly are familiar with the waves that your boat is is bouncing over. And <laughs> yeah, um,
0: very. Was- I'm very familiar with them because I'm in a
2: kayak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and of course those waves are are, are wind generated and um, uh, and these other waves that I'm talking about, such as the Kelvin wave um, and um, what we also refer to as Rossby waves, they're very large scale waves. They have they don't have much of a sea surface manifestation. They primarily have a deflection of the perma, perma, of the thermocline manifestation, but they may be um, uh, several thousand kilometers long and um, and they move um, uh, depending upon where you are the ones along the equator move uh, say a couple meters per second. Um, the Rossby waves which are at mid latitudes move much more slowly and um, what they wind up doing really from the point of view of, of, of affecting uh, ocean processes is, they deflect the thermocline uh, either downward or upward depending upon the nature of the disturbance that triggered them. And then they propagate slowly through the ocean. So if, if um, you have a thermocline that's been deflected downward from a biological point of view, what you've done is removed uh, from closer contact or proximity to the surface waters, there these richer, cooler waters that, are, that have a considerable amount of nutrients in them. And so you may wind up making it harder for production to take place because now you don't have nutrients as close to the surface as you might have had in the absence of this wave. Some of these waves result in the thermocline being bowed upward and coming closer to the surface and thereby being a um, uh, an easier source of nutrients for the surface waters, so they do have biological effects.
1: Interesting. I, I recall that uh, we had good strong upwelling, uh, which I always associated with um, uh, high productivity. But if that upwelling is taking place um, in a system in which the thermocline is uh, is depressed, then you you're liable to get more liable to get less uh, nutrients into the surface waters and kind of lower productivity. Is that, is that right?
2: So let me, let me see if I understand your question. If you have a deep thermocline and you result in coastal upwelling, if you have a deep thermocline along the coast, is that, is that what you're right?
1: Right. Right. Okay.
2: And you upwell that, I, I would argue that, um, if you do that you you enhance the pop- probability of promoting uh, biological production okay and that's okay. simply because in doing in doing what we just described you bring this nutrient rich water closer to the surface it it still has to get to the surface or into the well-led zone where the phytoplankton can utilize those nutrients if it doesn't then there's no um, no enhancement of biological production to be expected. Yeah, yeah. But if it can get up there into that well lit zone, uh, then there is uh, most likely it's going to enhance biological productivity.
1: I think uh, we had uh, uh, Bill Seideman, I don't know if you know him, he's a oceanographer and biological oceanographer uh, here in California, his work. Uh, in this coast and also in the Gulf of Alaska. He was one of our first guests on the program. And he talked about uh, upwelling uh, uh, under some circumstances resulting in a lot less nutrients getting into the surface than in similar upwelling in other periods of time. And I I thought maybe this, um, uh, uh, thermocline going up and down might have some relationship to that that phenomenon.
2: yeah i'm, I'm uh, uh, of course i wasn't uh, present for that uh, conversation yeah, yeah. so i don't know exactly what he's talking about but uh, the bottom line is if you get the thermocline up into the uh in into the what we call the euphrodic zone the region where phytoplankton have sufficient yeah. light to yeah. grow um, they'll do well if yeah. you can't get it up there and then you don't have a nutrient source right, for those. Right, products. right, right. Yeah,
0: we saw a dramatic shift, a dramatic change in the nearshore conditions this year after several years of unusually warm water at the surface. And we had a lot of cold upwelling this year. And it really, uh, this is the first year in three or four years that we've had good growth of kelp along here. So uh, the the effects of these processes really show up quickly here in the, at the interface between the sea and the land, really.
2: Yeah, I bet they do. I bet yeah. they do. Well, it doesn't take long for phytoplankton to get stimulated and take off. Um, it's interesting that the, the, the macroalgae um, also show a very similar and rapid response.
1: Yeah, yeah we, we had a heat wave in 2013 and uh, a dramatic uh, dive and uh, the amount of uh, bull kelp along the coast which is a you know is almost a a, a keystone species in a, in this in this ecosystem because it provides so much structure and a fair amount of productivity in the nearshore and that was it was ninety five percent gone I think something like that yeah. was, you could walk along miles ashore and not see any bull kelp but now it's coming back it's I don't think it's quite uh, I have to check check with Tristan McHugh but
0: it's not quite as uh, um, yeah, it's still a fraction of what it was formerly, yeah, yeah. but it's a lot better than yeah. it has been for the last few years. We only have about uh, six or seven minutes left in the program, so just keep that in mind. Uh, one of the things I would like to have you talk a little bit about before we get uh, forget about it is you mentioned the gyres. And yes. of course, show up in news reports from time to time in the context of uh, surface pollution. Do you want yes. to mention that a little?
2: Yeah. So, um, uh, and in particular, the what's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, or plastic garbage patch, which um, which uh, lies uh, not too far offshore from where you guys are, um, and um, it's uh, it's about a Texas-sized patch of uh, plastic that has accumulated. Uh, it lies. Uh, just a little bit centered, uh, just a little bit uh, south uh, east, oh, excuse me, west southwest of, of San Francisco um, and to the uh, northeast of Hawaii, okay? So it, it's it's largely confined between 21 and 38 north and uh, lo and behold, it sits right in the, um, the eastern end of um the subtropical gyre, which I described earlier. and and um, in the center of that gyre, the currents are extremely feeble. And uh, what this uh, what that gyre tends to do then is a lot of this plastic um, comes from Asian countries, okay? It's discharged into the ocean. It's carried uh, eastward. Um, as part of that North Pacific drift current that I described earlier that emanates from um, the Kurashio, And it's carrying that plastic and that current is moving slower and slower and diffusing, spreading out as it's drifting eastward. And it begins to flow southward off of the United States. And it's just very sluggish. So that material tends to accumulate in that patch okay and um and that's a consequence of of the gyral circulation
1: yeah that's uh it, it's an unfortunate reality of our uh of the anthropocene <laughs> manifesting in the ocean it's uh it and, and and we're finding more and more out about the biological impacts of those
2: uh, yeah of it's 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 been um I, 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 I agree with you Bob I, I, I think that it's been um, it's been recognized as an issue but I don't know that there's been a lot of concerted effort to understanding the uh, biological impacts of of this material um, but it certainly seems to be um, uh, pretty severe in at least some cases and possibly much greater than we've um, Paid attention
1: to. I know about five or six years ago I, I was doing a literature search on the effects of uh, uh, plastics in the ocean and uh, there, there really wasn't much being funded or published uh, in those days. I mean, p- people in the environmental organizations were certainly aware of it and were quite alarmed, but uh, somehow the, the research money wasn't really coming down where it should have been uh, in, in terms of
0: impacts of uh, these materials. One interesting thing is, that, you know, there's a, a problem, I think, of, of perception. You know, we, uh, very, very few people actually get out into the middle of the open Pacific and see what's going on out there. We see what's near shore. And the processes that uh, Professor Weingartner has just described to us tend to carry the most of the floating debris that is generated off the west coast of North America It gets pushed out into the middle of the Pacific where we don't have to look at it. Right, exactly. Exactly. So maybe we've got a little perception problem here. We think the ocean's cleaner than it really is.
2: Well, I I read some statistic, I forget what it was um, uh, exactly, but um, in 30 or 40 years, they expect to have more plastic, greater tonnage of plastic in the ocean than fish.
1: Wow. I think, yeah. well, it's yeah, breaking it is, down uh, into breaking down into microplastics too, and, yeah. and you don't see the microplastics. Right. I mean, but uh, people are picking them up now in samples almost anywhere you go. You, you process a sample right, and you can find it. Yep.
0: Yeah, we had Sean Anderson talking about that a couple of years right, ago. Right. Well, Dr. Weingarten, it's been a great discussion. Uh, we have just maybe a minute or two left. Do you want to give us a kind of a wrap up and also. Maybe uh, some suggested uh, places people could go to find out more information about these uh, oceanographic systems, the physical systems that are driving all of these local phenomena.
2: Well, um, uh, with respect to the latter point, I, I, you have some fantastic uh, uh, oceanography departments and several universities in Oregon and California. Um, and uh, many of the people at those universities are doing work off your uh, coastline. Uh, They know far more about it than than I do. Um, So if you were to look at um, any of those uh, websites, uh, you would pick up a lot of information and a lot of it is targeted for the general public. They've done a really nice job of of describing a lot of the research efforts that are going on. uh, so I en- encourage your listeners that are interested to, to, to browse those websites. Well, okay.
0: I'll just one more time remind people that we've been listening to uh, Dr. Thomas Weingartner, an Emer- Emeritus Professor of Oceanography from the College of Fisheries and Ocean Sciences at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Uh, and uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did.